0: Hi, it's Tom Paneris, and I wanted to come in on the top of the show here to say that this is one of a series of episodes that will cover the events of September 11, 2001, along with the popular culture about it. Though these events are now 20 years in the past, they are still traumatizing to many, and I wanted to give you a heads up that listener discretion is advised. If you choose to listen and have thoughts, comments, or points you'd like to make, I would love to hear your feedback send me an email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, comment on the Facebook post at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit, or find me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. In recent years, we as a people have been tribalized and factionalized by a thousand casual unkindnesses. But in this, we are one. Flags sprout from uncommon places, the ground made fertile by tears and shared resolve. We have become one in our grief. We are now one in our determination, one as we recover, one as we rebuild. You wanted to send a message, and in doing so, you awakened us from our self-involvement. Message received, look for our reply in the thunder. In such days as these, are heroes born. Not heroes such as ourselves, the true heroes of the 21st century. You the human being singular. You who are nobler than you know and stronger than you think. You the heroes of this moment chosen out of history. We stand blinded by the light of your unbroken will. Before that light, no darkness can prevail. They knocked down two tall towers. In their memory, draft a covenant with your conscience that we will create a world in which such things need not occur. A world which will not require apologies to children, but also a world whose roads are not paved with the husks of their inalienable rights. They knocked down two tall towers. Graft now their echo onto your spine, become girders and glass, stone and steel, so that when the world sees you, it sees them, and stand tall, stand tall, stand tall. Those are the narration boxes on the last three pages of The Amazing Spider-Man, volume two, issue number 36, a standalone story where Spider-Man encounters and reacts to the attacks of September 11th, 2001. It's an issue that I had heard about upon its publication, but my own comics buying was so sporadic at the time that I did not pick it up at my LCS. I would read it after a couple of years later when I bought the revelations trade that collected the second part of J. Michael Strasinski's run on the book. Being one of the first comic book statements on the event, it sets the tone for many that would come after, and it's a risky proposition. After all, many people will remind you that they go to their comics to escape the world, not be reminded of it, just like they do for their movies, their music, their, oh, any aspect of our culture. Yet popular culture does not happen in a vacuum. At some point, writers and artists in the comic book industry, an industry at the time that was largely headquartered in Manhattan, were going to look both outward and inward to produce work that helped them and perhaps helped us make sense of what happened that Tuesday. And perhaps it was appropriate that Spidey, the hero who represents the put-down everyday guy who has to learn that with great power comes great responsibility, was the one to lead the way. The words that JMS put into his mouth were the words of a trusted friend and in some ways the words that we'd all been trying to say and wanted to hear. This is the second episode in a six-episode series about 9-11 and pop culture, brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I want to do over the course of these six episodes is examine the books, movies, music, comics, and other popular culture that directly addresses or is about the attacks of September 11, 2001. Each episode is going to focus on a different medium, and I am going to spend time reviewing them as well as evaluating their effectiveness in capturing the moments and feelings of the day. We use our culture to both memorialize and interpret events. With 20 years gone since that day, it's time we looked at whether or not those pieces accomplish what they set out to do. Now, I will tell you up front that I'm not going to be able to talk about every single piece of popular culture that's about 9-11. And I will mostly stick to what I've read, watched, or listened to, or what had any sort of real effect on me. So there will be a lot that I don't talk about, and you're welcome to let me know what I might be missing. But keep in mind that even though I'm going for some talk about history and popular culture here, I'm also going to speak from a very personal place, and that means some of my preferences and biases might be on display. I think I'll also take a moment to tell you that while I'll be getting into people's visions, interpretations, or fictionalizations of 9-11, I will not get into anything regarding conspiracy theories. I personally find them, 9-11 trutherism and everything else associated with it, to be morally repugnant. Last episode, I stuck to mainly non-fiction, recounting the events of the attacks as well as some of the reporting and true-life stories surrounding them. For this episode, I'm taking my first steps away from the history that I was talking about, But I'll be in the area where fiction and nonfiction kind of overlap, which is in the way that comics, writers, artists, and companies responded to the tragedy of September 11, 2001. For the top of the show was a quote from The Amazing Spider Man, Volume 2, Number 36. And that comic, featuring an all black cover with a story that had no title, was published on November 11, 2001, with a December 2001 cover date. It came a mere two months after the attacks, a very quick turnaround in comic book creation. It was also one of the earliest, if not the earliest, comic book stories that directly addressed 9-11. Written by J. Michael Straczynski with art by John Romita Jr. and Scott Hanna, the story opens with a double-page spread of Spider-Man witnessing the fires of the fallen Twin Towers and then encountering two people on the street who say, where were you? How could you let this happen? He doesn't have an answer. The story continues as he contemplates the nature of heroes, and we see Marvel heroes and villains helping with the recovery efforts at Ground Zero. But their images begin to get superseded by those of firefighters and rescue workers. The emphasis is on, as he says, ordinary men, ordinary women. He tries comforting a boy who just saw his father's body pulled out of the rubble. He tries answering why it happened. As he continues to help, all he can say is that we are here now with you and that the heroes they are live inside every person, ending with what I read at the top of the show. It's a statement made through comics that is very much like the statement that we saw immediately after the attacks. Straczynski gives us an immediate reaction and has his character do what he really can only do in that situation, which is provide inspiration to those who need it and to those who can truly make a difference. In reading it, I actually was reminded of Doug Murray and Wayne Van Zant's The Nom number 41, in which a soldier is backing up the belongings of a member of his unit was recently killed in action. Among those belongings are a number of Marvel comics featuring Thor, Iron Man, and Captain America. He begins to think about what it'd be like if each of those heroes was fighting in the Vietnam War, and ultimately reaches the conclusion that to try to write that story is futile because those heroes would end the war quickly, and the sentiment contained in their existence is almost too simple for what was a very complicated, often harrowing, situation. Spider-Man's pretty useless at the moment of the attacks, but he does what he can to help in a rescue effort, which plays into the hero-that-could-be-you aspect of his character and story. However, as we see other heroes of the Marvel Universe, many of whom have godlike powers, look on Hopeless or help out in a similar way, I have to wonder if JMS fully sticks the landing. I guess I understand putting the Fantastic Four and other New York-based heroes in the issue, but when you see the other Avengers, it seems weirdly out of place. Perhaps if he just kept it to Spider-Man. Now granted, I realize that's what he's going for. I mean, as the idea of a superhero in a place like, or time like that, you know, or conversely the idea that, of that moment happening in a superhero universe really doesn't make sense. He gets that across well when he does have Peter's thoughts be jumbled or has not un, un, unable to answer the questions of those around him because all he can think of is how he should react and how he can help. But it's a good note to start on, a good note to start my coverage on, not because it answers some inane continuity question about how are they going to handle 9-11 in the comics, because it makes the effort to capture a sentiment. Ramita Jr.'s art is very good throughout the issue. Spider-Man is not only on point, but he puts a lot of effort into detailing the setting and giving each of the non-superhero characters different and distinct features. He avoids the flashiness, the cartooniness, and the superheroiness that is often found in books from the Big Two and makes the issue feel like New York, if that makes sense. Marvel would go on later to publish the first of what were four very visible compilations that were put out by various companies, all of which were sold with the intention of creating contributions to charities and relief funds. Moment of Silence, a single issue compilation of mostly silent stories, made its way to comic book stores on January 9th, 2002. This was followed by the independently published 9/11 Emergency Relief on February 4th of 2002, Dark Horse's 9/11 Volume 1, and then DC's 9/11 Volume 2 on February 13th of 2002. These are all the same type of publication pinups and short stories by various comics professionals in which they shared their thoughts and stories about 9-11. Whereas ASM 36 was a simple black cover, the cover to each of these collections reflected the contents. A Moment of Silence is Covered was penciled by Joe Quesada and painted by Alex Ross, and it shows an anonymous New York City firefighter holding a folded American flag. 9-11 9-11 Emergency Relief is a Frank Cho portrait of a fireman holding a shovel while other first responders, police, and paramedics work to find the people in the rubble of the World Trade Center while a flag flies behind them. 9-11 Volume 1 is an Eric Drucker painting of a lonely artist sitting on the top of an Art Deco-looking building with New York City landmarks of the skyline around him. 9-11 Volume 2 is an Alex Ross painting that takes the cover of the big all-American comic book, where a kid and his dog are looking up at a billboard of the Justice Society and saying, wow, and puts Superman and crypto on the ground, looking up at a billboard of police, firefighters, EMTs, doctors, nurses, and pilots and saying, wow. I don't favor one out of all of them because I find them all to be considerably effective. Both of Ross's contributions are probably the two that stand out from the most, especially considering who they're from. And I guess the Superman one is going to get the most attention, especially considering it's referencing a Golden Age book and is making a statement about heroes using the original superhero. I can be hot and cold on Alex Ross, especially his Superman, but I do find this painting to be breathtaking. And the same can be said for the moment of silence cover, which says a lot in its simplicity. Frank Cho's use of a firefighter as the attention grabber is a display of his almost Adam Hughes-like way of portraying musculature, and he does a very good job of getting across the strength contained in the image. And while the Drucker cover is the least like the others, no firefighters, no flags, It is just as powerful because it helps demonstrate the exposure that he and so many others felt after that day. In our ordinary lives and jobs that did not contribute positively or negatively toward the relief efforts, what can we do but feel well alone and unsure? Now, I own all of these, and I've read them a few times over the years. I think that this year was the first year in a long time that I had read actually all of them, because usually I maybe read a few stories out of one of them or maybe one of the whole compilations. And while I do think they're all worthwhile, going through all of the stories and all of the volumes could prove tedious on this podcast. So what I've decided to do is talk about what stood out to me. I had originally thought of talking about five pinups and ten stories, but as I bookmarked the pieces that, like, jumped out at me though. I was like, okay, I want to talk about this. I found out that, that I used up most of a Post-it pad because there were dozens of stories in these collections and so many of them have an emotional impact staying with me long after I've closed the books. What I did notice, though, were motifs. With so many different creators offering up what they wanted to say, and I get the feeling that they were allowed a particular amount of free reign, there are stories that are similar in their subject matter. There are people's personal reactions and stories, the well, use of well-known comics characters in the context of the events, tributes to those whose lives were lost, lionizing of firefighters and other rescue workers, opinions on our culture's reaction to the attacks, speculation as about to what's to come, and both literal and abstract reflections on the events. At the same time, though, every piece's tone is not the same, and while some are somber, others are angry, and some are even cynical. I'll start by talking about a few pinups, and most of these come from the DC collection, but two come from the 9 11 Volume 1 collection. Both are very simple in their composition, but make bold statements. The first is by artist Mike Gestive or Gestive. It shows a view from the other side of a chain link fence. Behind the fence, in the distance, are the shadows of the Twin Towers. Permeating the foreground from top to bottom are what looks like fallen pieces of paper that are floating toward us and then settling in front of us. But as you look at them, some of them resemble birds flying and others resemble simple shapes that could be bodies falling. I even see faces among the creases of that stacked paper toward the bottom of the picture. The image of reams upon reams of paper falling out of the towers after they exploded along with other debris is one that's hard to forget. And this sense of accumulation that he gets across here in this one simple image is astounding. Equally as effective is Steven Guaracchia's picture of a jumbo jet, which shows the exact locations and instructions on how to brace for impact right out of a safety manual, but has the caption, This is not a bomb. With one image in one sentence, there's all of the feelings, the anger, the helplessness, the feeling of being unsafe. And it's hard to get away from that. Kieran Dwyer's illustration of two monolithic towers against a purple sky with each of the towers containing the faces of those lost on 9-11 is one of the first illustrations in DC's collection, which has itself arranged in thematic sections of nightmares, heroes, recollections, unity, dreams, and reflections. It hits us with that sense of loss and gravity in the sense of the multitudes, which is the opposite of the way that Brian Stelfreeze gets the same emotion in his piece which is a wife sitting in bed with a box of tissues and a phone at her feet, reaching out to her husband's pillow. In this case, it's a moment of intimate loss, just as effective. And another that is just as effective is Cliff Chang's pinup of a wife embracing her husband who has a duffel bag around his arm as the disaster plays out on the television behind them. On the floor is what looks like to be a toolbox or some equipment box, and it's a moment of worry, perhaps a last embrace, because on the television behind them, the towers are still standing, and I believe that's where he's headed. You wonder, like you would, a found snapshot, what happened after that? Was there another embrace when he returned home from the rescue and recovery effort, or is she the wife in Brian Stelfreeze's piece, sitting in a half-empty bed, touching his pillow? And then there's the last pinup image I'll talk about, which is one of many featuring a DC superhero. In this case, it's by Lee Bermejo, and it's of Batman. It shows him in midair, having left into action from a rooftop. The entirety of the illustration is in black and white, except for the full-color American flags that are displayed from fire escapes. I'm not sure how to explain why this struck me so much. Perhaps it was the contrast of the color and the black and white aspects of the picture, Perhaps it was the action of the character, but it's one of the illustrations I think about whenever I see the spine of this book, that of a hero whose mission has only been strengthened and needs to continue. For the stories in the compilations, I'll start with the first story in Moment of Silence, which is one of the many things that happened in the building stories. It's the true story of Anthony Savas, who was the father of Tina Savas, who worked at Marvel in 2001. Tony was a building inspector for the Port Authority, and on 9-11, we see him showing up for work like he would on any other day, grabbing a hard hat and going to a building site. At one point, red emergency lighting turns on, sprinkler systems activate, and Tony gets word of what has happened. He gives firefighters access to stairwells in the buildings, he helps some people get down and out of the towers, he directs people and other rescue workers to points of access, and then joins them in trying to get more people out of the buildings. The story ends with, on September 30th, Tony's body was recovered along with those of several firefighters. They were found in a collapsed stairwell in the ruins of the towers. It's a silent story written by Bill Jameis and beautifully drawn by Mark Bagley and Scott Hanna, two artists who know how to get the realness of the day and events across as well as the emotion. They don't sensationalize anything when the attacks happen. The fourth page of the story And when Tony is helping people out, they do a great job of using 9, 10, and 11 panel grids to both get the action across quickly, but keep things feeling as claustrophobic as they must have felt in those buildings at the time. In fact, there's only one shot of the towers on fire, and it's on the last page, followed by a determined look on Tony's face before he goes back into the building with the firefighters. Emergency Relief has a story that goes on for several pages called Down and Out by Evan Forch and Robert Ullman that is straight up the story of a group of office workers who had shown up to work on the morning of September 11th and then had to get out of the building. It's simply told in black and white, and the art is your very typical Independence Comics cartoony, especially for the time, but it doesn't take away from the urgency of the moment, especially since the creators pace it with said urgency. And it ends with two guys from the office finding one another on a bus and saying they'll stick together as they pull away from the collapsing towers. Again, it's simple, but it's necessary. It's a necessary recording of events that lack embellishment or hyperbole. You know, the DC collection opens with a Superman story. I talked about Spider-Man at the beginning of the show. I mentioned Batman. So if there is one hero we really did need some sort of story from, it would be Superman. And this is by Stephen T. Siegel, Duncan Rulo, and Aaron Saud, and it shows Superman fixing a satellite in space and thinking of what he can and can't do, ultimately saying that the one thing he can't do is break free from his fictional pages and become real. And we then cut to a little boy reading that Superman comic as he is helped out of the wreckage of the World Trade Center and by a firefighter who passes him off to his mother and then races back into the fire, holding an American flag. As Superman thinks about how our real world is protected by heroes of its own. It's short and it's simple, but it gets its point across very, very well. A point that Straczynski was trying to make too in his Spider-Man story. And there are other stories of this nature, such as Walk by James Denning and Gaia Davis that depicts people helping one another out of the Twin Towers. Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti give us seven Polaroid-esque panels of little stories from the day of the disaster and the immediate aftermath called Silver Linings in a Big Dust Cloud, which includes stories of women carrying girls in wheelchairs down a stairway to safety, people giving out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to rescue workers, a cat surviving in the wreckage and being refuge, and masseuses giving free massages to rescue workers and rescue dogs at Ground Zero. In fact, there's a three-page crypto story that's great. It's by Jeff Loeb, Carlos Pacheo, and Jesus Moreno. It shows crypto flying into ground zero to deliver a giant water bowl to the very hard-working and tired rescue dogs. All of these stories avoid sensationalizing the violence of the day or capitalizing on it in a way that's crass. While some do tip a little into the jingoistic, depending on your point of view, such as Hilary Bader and Sergio *The 1st Division, which depicts a colonel who has been killed in the Pentagon being visited by General Washington and receiving the honor of being the first soldier killed in a new war, they mostly avoid punditry. It's tough to depict such tragedies so quickly after it happened anyway, because there hasn't been a lot of time to process one's feelings and let everything settle in. Then again, what these collections do for us is show creators processing their feelings, which is what so many of us were still doing in late 2001 and 2002. That processing of feelings is on display in a number of pieces where the writers and artists are contemplating whether or not their job matters. Much like the conclusion to Sarah Bunnings' For Thou Art With Us, they look at what they do and they feel useless. In the Emergency Relief Collection, John Bean Hastings has a meta-commentary piece that shows him watching the events unfold on television and then have an accusatory man pop through the television to yell at him about how useless his funny books are, and the pages go from fully inked to penciled to sketched. But then Hastings responds with a point that, at least according to this guy who focuses on what might be considered frivolous pursuits, is succinct and beautifully put. He says... Stories give us hope. Expressing our thoughts and feelings is what gives us our humanity. Through stories, we can share our grief, our outrage, our horror, but also our dreams, our memories, our hopes for the future. That's what they can't take away, and that's what they don't understand. We are more alike than we are different. We are all connected by stories. As he says this, the page goes back to being fully inked and shaded, and he returns to his drawing board. We see a similar sentiment in a story by Brian K. Vaughan and artists Pete Woods and Keith Champagne. A father and a son, both comic artists, are temporarily sharing a studio. The son, named Vince, is struggling with a creative block because of all the horror in September 11th still in his mind. He can't bring himself to draw Superman. There are real heroes out there, and it feels frivolous to focus on the imaginary ones. His father puts it into perspective and says that even as artists, they have a role to play, which is to comfort people, even if it has given them a means of escape in terrible times. And despite all that's happened, they have a mission themselves, and they keep doing it, a sentiment of the pursuit of calling that we often heard in the weeks after the tragedy, and one that is also reflected in a piece by Ed Brubaker and Michael Lark. In this one, the creators are photographers in a studio who have taken many, many pictures of what happened. It's a similar situation, an older photographer and a younger photographer. There are conversations at diners and bars about the purpose and God and belief, and both photographers share how overwhelmed they are by everything. But then we have a scene at the end with a widow who has visited their office, and what the older photographer is producing for her is a print of a picture that ran in the paper. It's a photo of a firefighter rescuing a boy, which is the last photo ever taken of her husband. It ends on a more somber note than the purposeful one of the comic's artist pieces, but an important one nonetheless, that, quote, In the end, once the illusion of safety has been removed, all we really have is each other, and the proof is captured in pictures around the world, in brief memories of loved ones' images of brave men covered in soot innocent people trapped in burning buildings a world of horror in still life, and no matter how hard you try, you just can't look away anymore. Not being able to look away and not being able to forget are both important, and these collections seek to also capture that in relating to us. Many of the creators were nowhere near any of the disaster sites and didn't necessarily know someone who was injured or died, but like so many of us, they did bear witness And we get a number of stories where people see the fall of the towers on TV or relate how the day unfolded with what they thought was an inconvenience or an interruption, but turned out to be much, much more. In Emergency Relief, Danny Donovan, Eric Wolf Hansen, and Mark Stegebauer show a guy waking up, seeing what happened, thinking about people he knows in Manhattan and checking on them via instant messenger. In Artists Respond, Stan Sakai has a two-page story wherein he thinks back to a time in Lower Manhattan where he watched a kid perform tricks on his skateboard, which included jumping over multiple trash cans. As he watches everything happen on September 11th, that kid, who he only met briefly, becomes the most important person in the world to him. It's completely random, but when you think about it, it's an honest sort of thought, as we will often get into what we associate with a certain place when an event like this happens. In Emergency Relief, A. David Lewis relates the story of living in the Washington, D.C. area and checking in with friends via email. Brian Clopper writes about what it was like to be teaching a class of fourth graders that day, where his wife called in a panic and he had to keep on teaching like nothing was happening while his students were pulled from his class. He then notes that they started talking about it the next day and for days after. And really, it's a professional situation where I'm not sure I would know what to do because there are little kids involved and not teenagers. The high school students I taught in the mid-2000s and early 2010s before they all became too young to have witnessed or remember the event. Um, At this point, my youngest student will now have been born in 2007, by the way. They all have stories about being pulled from class, teachers not talking about it or talking about it depending on who they were. I don't think any of them saw it on TV until they got home. Personally, I don't know what I would have done. The January 6th terrorist attack on the Capitol building happened in the middle of my fourth period class this year. But because we were in Zoom land, I was kind of unaware what was going on until we finished our synchronous time. The next day, I could barely keep myself together in my first block AP class. I was so upset. It's a whole mess of feelings that I would rather not get too deep into except to say that I appreciated that story in this 9-11 compilation for this perspective. Funny enough, the commuter stories were closer to my personal experience because I was commuting into Maryland from Virginia, so I passed through Washington, D.C. and the Pentagon, as I talked about last episode. Ted Rall, who produced some of the best political strips of the 2000s writes about being in Philadelphia the day of the attacks and getting back to New York where his wife's friend, who had survived the tower's collapse, is watching the coverage on television and saying that it was way worse than they're actually reporting. In Artists Respond, Lori Ross's story is about commuting via the DC metro, having her train diverted, and the confusion that came from her fellow passengers, which is told through a mass of words encased in the smoke coming from the fire at the Pentagon, and then is followed by reactions. And those reactions are important, as they are part of what we collectively went through. The reaction that Ross's partner has is what many felt after 9-11, which is anger. After watching the footage on an endless loop, she yells, Who are we going to bomb? Now, this ends with them lighting candles, but that wasn't always the case. One thing that nowadays tends to get glossed over in our friends' Facebook posts about how we all need to get back to this togetherness of September 12th is the number of hate crimes committed toward Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, and a number of other people who racists decided to deem, quote, terrorists. Mike Manley in Emergency Relief talks about the relationship he has with his younger brother, Mark, who is Muslim. As he watches things unfold, he and his brother talk on the phone and argue. Mike yells about Osama bin Laden while Mark yells conspiracy theories to the point where their mother gets mad at them for arguing with one another. But later that evening, Mark calls back and says that on the way home from school, he was being harassed by people yelling slurs and telling him to go back to his country, even though he was born in America, which, by the way, happened a lot. Racists think of any brown immigrant as some sort of invader, and it extends down to the, their children. In the DC collection, Humberto Ramos and Sandra Hope illustrate a story by Jeff Johns and David S. Goyer, wherein two kids are harassing two Pakistani-American children, first saying that the kids knew what was going to happen, and then telling them that they're not allowed to read a Superman comic, saying, He's ours! Of course, the two kids in the scene in a mirror, point out that A, Superman doesn't come from America, B, is an immigrant, and C, they were born in New Jersey. Thankfully, the kids make up before anything bad can really happen, but that's not necessarily the case in the static shock short story that Dwayne McDuffie and Dennis Cowan bring us. That's where some white racists trash Akkad's arcade because the owner is Arab-American, throwing a garbage can through the window and smashing things with baseball bats while screaming, USA! USA! It then gets more serious when one of them pulls a gun on Akkad, but static intervenes and the guys are arrested. It's a fictional story with a good ending, which didn't always happen. In the Artist Respond volume, Brian Pulido, Ivan Reis, and uh, Joe Pimentel have a one-page illustration of a Sikh gas station owner handing out water to a couple of neighborhood kids. The narration boxes tell us that on September 15, 2001, in Mesa, Arizona, that man, Balbir Singh Sodhi, was shot and killed in a hate crime. Why? He was brown and he was wearing a turban. that's all, because that's what was happening. And so many voiced their frustration at the time about it, like Keith Knight in the Emergency Relief Collection, who talks about how there was no discernment at ground zero between people's color and race because it didn't exist in the moment. But the further away we got geographically and in time, the more hate began to surface. And he says to all the idiots perpetuating these shameful and useless acts, I ask you to show the same restraint you displayed toward white Americans when Timothy McVeigh bombed Oklahoma City not too long ago. It's a sentiment that made me think of an essay of an old classmate of mine. Her parents are born in Syria. She wrote the essay when we were a freshman in college. The Oklahoma City bombing was only a year prior to that. And the essay called The Waking Up to the Bomb begins with her worry that the perpetuators of the bombing were Arab And then goes on to examine the way that our media depicts Arab Americans, which is very often the role of the terrorist. A point Jim Moffat makes in the artist's respond volume saying, quote, since the beginning, Hollywood has depicted Arabs as either crazy AK-47 toting terrorists or convenience store clerks. Is this how most of America sees us? His story called Arab Americans is about his family and his community relating anecdotes about people he knew and how they lost businesses, how they were harassed, or how he heard about others in the community being harassed after 9-11. He then closes with thoughts about the future and the need for a reckoning about what our values really are, which I see in a number of other pieces in these volumes. As Americans, he says, we still have a lot of obstacles to overcome with each other. As Americans, I think that we have to ask ourselves what we're going to do about the problem. In the DC Comics volume, Darwin Cook wonders why we put so much emphasis on the artifice of celebrity instead of those actually doing the work. In Emergency Relief, Tom Hart has a dialogue between two people where they wonder why events like this never stop our culture from being crass, especially in our violent reactions. And in Artists Respond, we get one of the best, most nuanced examinations of this. Written by Bob Harris with pictures by Gregory Ruth, it's called Which One is Real? And it juxtaposes contrasting images of the people who are most recognizable from 9-11. The George W. Bush who spoke at Bob Jones University appealing to Southern racists, or the George W. Bush who invoked Benevolent Allah before Congress. The NYPD who used racial profiling, shot Amadou Diallo 41 times and sodomized Abner Luima with a broomstick. Or the NYPD who rushed headlong into the horror to save lives of all races, losing dozens of courageous men. The Taliban who harbored the World Trade Center terrorist or the Taliban quartered by U.S. oilmen to help construct a major pipeline. America, the builder of coalitions, defender of world freedom, or America, the ignorer of treaties on global warming, biological weapons, money laundering, arms trafficking, missile defense, tobacco control, nuclear testing, and child labor. All of it, all of it is real, good and bad, all of it. God bless America and God help us all, as he says. It's a powerful piece. It does more thinking than a number of other sentimental pieces in these collections and does what's necessary to really acknowledge the complexity of what we're dealing with and how we need to think critically in our reaction and remembrance of the events rather than be reactionary and fall play to manufactured group think. This is echoed in Art Spiegelman's In the Shadow of No Towers, which was published in 2004 and is a collection of comic strips that have been published in the German paper Die Zeit from 2002 to 2004. Spiegelman, of course, is known for being the illustrator behind Top's Wacky Packages and Garbage Tail Kids, as well as being the writer and artist of the award-winning graphic novel Mouse, which is about the Holocaust. The Shadow of No Towers is his emotional and intellectual reaction to the attacks of September 11th and was published in its serialized format in Germany after he could not find a publisher to print it in the United States. The collected edition is an oversized board book, yes, like the ones he used to give to babies and toddlers, and it reprints the comics in addition to a number of very early comic strips like Crazy Cat, Hogan's Alley, and the Cats and Jammer Kids. Each of those two particular sections is preceded by an essay by Spiegelman. While the latter didn't really interest me, I'm sorry, beyond being slightly curious and acknowledging its place in common history, I really don't have much of affection for Little Nemo and Slumberland. The first half of the book certainly did interest me. Spiegelman lived in Lower Manhattan on September 11, 2001, with his wife, Francoise Mouly, And their two kids. His daughter who was the oldest was a student at Stuyvesant High School. His son was an elementary age student at the United Nations School. As he tells in his story about the day, he was near enough to the World Trade Center to see the attacks happen and was picking up his daughter from Stuy High when the towers collapsed. Everyone in his family was safe and as the country dealt with the events, he decided to recommit himself to art and comics. However, he freely admits that he's not the type of cartoonist to keep a regular schedule, so having anything actually see print was not guaranteed. One thing that did see print, which also makes up the cover of the book, was the September twenty-fourth, two 2001 cover of The New Yorker. Muli was the art director in the magazine, so she and Spiegelman produced a simple black-on-black cover featuring the silhouette of the towers. You can Google it, and even though it's incredibly simple in its composition, it stops you. No, really, you'll, you'll pull it up and you find yourself staring at the black towers in the black background, looking at how the antenna of the North Tower imposes upon the magazine's logo, blacking out the part of the white W in New Yorker. In taking so long to publish the contents of In the Shadow of No Towers, Spiegelman does his audience, and I'd say himself, a great service, in that he takes the 9-11 comic as it is beyond the simple tribute that we saw in the books I've already talked about. The Spider-Man issue, like I said, was late 2001, and the last of the tribute collections was published in mid-February of 2002. I don't know what the production schedule was for these books, but I'd say that many of those pieces were done not long after the attacks, or in the very least didn't have the hindsight of a year or two, which is what Spiegelman's case is. In The Shadow of No Towers is a book where the pages are loud, they're in your face, and they're a mixture of personal story and political commentary. He begins trying to make sense of it, And tells what happened on the day of the attacks, he talks about witnessing the towers collapse while picking up his daughter from school, but then he shifts into looking at the bigger picture of what happened in the country and our culture as the months went on, especially the Bush administration's deployment of troops into Afghanistan, followed by a pivot toward Iraq all the while using the Department of Homeland Security to make us feel safe by keeping us in constant fear of something else happening via the terror-threat-level color system or by twisting the patriotism that arose after 9-11 into full-on warmongering propaganda. He ends his last strip before the book goes into reprinting old newspaper comics by quoting W. H. Auden's poem September 1st, 1939. The unmentionable odor of death offends the September night Then he goes on to say, right after 9-11-01, while waiting for some other terrorist shoe to drop, many found comfort in poetry. Others searched for solace in old newspaper comics. On 9-11-03, the unmentionable odor of death still offends as we commemorate two years of squandered chances to bring the community of nations together. In September 04, cowboy boots drop on ground zero as New York is transformed into a stage set for the Republican Presidential Convention, and tragedy is f- transformed into travesty. The towers have come to bloom far larger than life, but they seem to get smaller every day. Happy anniversary. It's a coda on all of this comics work that has run through a gamut of emotions. While it is a bit all over the place in its presentation, Spiegelman shoves as much as he can into each two-page spread. It's a much-needed perspective, a reminder, no matter how cynical it may be, of the way that so many of us felt manipulated after the dust finally settled and how our feelings were preyed upon by those with agendas for profit or political gain. Yes, we stood together, but as I said earlier, when the standing together became groupthink, we needed someone to point out that's what was happening. I want to close with a look at three pieces from the DC collection, which are different and the ones that I always come back to. The first is called No Sale. It's by Jennifer Moore with art by Jill Thompson. It shows a woman going through a day sometime after 9-11 and around her is the crassness of those who are capitalizing on the disaster. An ad for a store saying they will donate every 10% of every purchase to the relief effort, a pop ballad that has disaster footage mixed into it, a man in a meeting talking about how to get word to their customers and how they can leverage the tragic event to build their revenue, rising gas prices, an ad for a free police fire or angel bunny with the purchase of another plush toy, the television showing never-before-seen footage of the explosions, and an online auction for genuine World Trade Center debris. Finally, two neighborhood kids show up with a home-baked cookies that they are selling to collect money to help all the people who died, and she buys all of it. The second, called A Tale of Two Americans, is by Ben Rabb with art by Roger Robinson and Dennis Janke. In it, a Tony Stark-looking guy is walking to his car and runs into his neighbor who is hanging up flags and wearing a flag t-shirt. Said neighbor asks him if he can count on them for the candlelight vigil that Friday. He responds by saying just because you choose to wear your patriotism on your sleeve doesn't mean everybody else should too. Character is doing the right thing when no one is watching. He then pulls away leaving his neighbor annoyed. Later that night the neighbor and his family sees that someone has made an anonymous donation to the Red Cross and local emergency rescue team saying that they wish to remain anonymous adding character is doing the right thing when no one is watching. And it's the neighborly thing to do. As the patriotic neighbor heads the candlelight vigil, he sees a lit candle on that neighbor's porch. And finally, there is America's Pastime by Brian Azzarello and Edward Risso. It's October 27, 2001, and a Red Sox fan sits in the bar watching the World Series. His friend walks in wearing his own Red Sox jacket, but also wearing a Yankees cap. And our guy answers the question, who crapped on your head by saying he's pulling for the Yankees because New York needs it and it's the right thing to do for America. His friend, though, goes on to explain that they are not going to root for the Yankees because, quote, this is Boston, Jimmy boy, the birthplace of America. And we stand tall. We did when that ball went through Buckner's legs. We did when Big Mo took the money and ran. We do every time that Benedict Donald Roger the Rocket, comes back to Fenway dressed in the pinstripes we was raised to loathe. We hate the fucking Yankees like our fathers and our grandfathers hated them. They're the fucking Yankees acting like the gods give to baseball. Like if they ain't in the series, it don't mean squat. That cocky swagger, pretty boy shortstop. What happened on 9-11? You can't let it affect you that way, Jimmy, because that's what they want. I'm telling you, you root for the fucking Yankees the terrorists win. His friend responds by taking off the cap and saying, go D-backs. And I apologize for my effort at a Boston accent because it sounded like Boston by way of Long Island. And maybe that is a Yankees fan who used to root for the Red Sox or something. So my bad. Anyway, these three Mm. stories all take place away from ground zero, but they all feel genuine because they're about the individual among the chaos remembering what makes us who we are. And they all spoke to me because of that. Post 9-11, I saw a lot of flags and outward effort. And while there was a lot of people authentically expressing the way they felt, the cynical side of me couldn't help but wonder how much of that was performative or how they were just going along with it because they were conforming, because that was what we were supposed to be doing, right? I mean, maybe it's selfish on my part. I mean, I'm not one to put that on my sleeve. And I was definitely turned off by seeing ads for commemorative statuettes, plates, and coins. Funny enough, I closed with the baseball piece because that spoke to me as much as any others in the collections. Part of it is because I, well, hate the fucking Yankees. And I especially loathe them during their late 90s, early 2000s heyday. Part of it is because I felt exactly how that guy in the bar did. Rooting for the Yankees was being equated to, like, rooting for America. It felt forced. It didn't feel right. I was definitely happy to see Luis Gonzalez win game sevens for the Diamondbacks. Of course, your mileage may vary on that, and your mileage may vary on all the stories I talked about here. But I like the perspective that comics creators were able to give us which is, as some of those stories said, all they can really do and all that we can really ask for. Thank you for coming along in the second part of the miniseries. In part three, I will be looking at literature, mainly novels, poetry, and short stories. Part three will also be an, a crossover episode of sorts as the August episode of Required Reading with Tom and Stella is going to be recovering Jonathan Saffron Foer's novel Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. And you can check that out when it drops around August 15th. Until then, I wanted to let you know that I am setting aside a portion of the last episode of this series, episode 6, to answer any feedback I get on the series. So if you have something you want to say, drop me a line at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook. Not only would I like to hear your feedback, but I'd also like to hear your stories, either what you remember about that day or the thoughts you have about it 20 years later. And as always, thank you for listening and take care. This has been 9-11 in Popular Culture, which is presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. The producer and narrator is Tom Pannerese. Background music is by Sanji, MD Sabir Khan, royalty-free music, and Dick DeRitter, all of which are used via the Creative Commons license. Other clips used in this series are done so under fair use. Show notes are available at popcultureaffidavit.com. Emails can be sent to me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff. That's P O P A F F. Thank you very much for listening.